In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We know of people who don't know God, but did you know about the person that God does not know? There is a person that God does not know, and that is the person that we tend to create in our own image. And God knows nothing about this person because we created him, and it's not the person God created. And we do this because we are tempted to live out of some kind of a pressure to be enough in the eyes of others. We create this person and project this to others because we think that's what they want to see. That's what will please them. The sad thing is that this is not the person God made us to be. And so he knows nothing of this Pastor Brandon when he's living out of this projection. And I think we do this because we forget how God values human beings. He does not see us the way we see each other. We know this when Samuel was sent by God to anoint the true king of Israel, King David. Israel had just had this very charismatic leader. The Hebrew language describes him this way. When it says that he says that Saul was tall, it, it really refers more to his charisma than his actual stature, his height, his physical height. Um, and so Israel was used to one type of leader, but God was going to call this young shepherd boy the runt of the family, who the family thought was so unworthy of being made a king, they didn't invite him to the Samuel anointing ceremony. They had to wait around awkwardly looking at each other while David shows up from the fields. And you know what God says in this moment? Samuel's there to anoint the next king. And when Jesse brings out his sons, he sees the firstborn son. And Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab was handsome. He was strong. He was the firstborn type of kid. Not that secondborns are any worse or anything. (laughs) Um, But then God speaks to Samuel and says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. If we understood this and took this to heart, we would live as the person God made us to be, and we would not care what others want us to be. So tonight, we conclude the passions by looking at the last two. So number seven and eight, self-esteem and pride. They are very similar, but they're different. Um, But I'm going to put them together because, well, we're out of weeks, one. And two, um, they are so similar, they deserve to just be looked at together. Because what pride is, ultimately, pride is the culmination of all seven passions. If you climb the ladder of the passions, or maybe you should say descend the ladder of the passions, um, you end up in the cesspool of pride. That's where they lead. So self-esteem is the last step before we lose our souls. That's what we're looking at. The passions, what are they? They're they're also known as the seven deadly sins, but the old language was passion because a passion was something that rendered you passive. Something takes over you. We think that we own passions, but in old theology talk, passions own us. So gluttony owns me, lust owns me, greed, anger, apathy, despondency, self-esteem, and pride. These are, as Evagrius the Solitary described it rather graphically and helpfully, they're the eight cracks of the heart through which demonic sin enters. 
So they come to us as thoughts through these eight cracks. And then we have the decision, am I going to give my consent and my love and my thoughts and my action to this thought? If yes, it becomes a sin. Or am I going to reject it and expel it? Then no harm done for the thought. Because thoughts come regardless of whether or not you want them. That's not the sin. It's whether or not we let the thought attach to us. And then when we do let the thought attach to us, we dwell on it, think about it, fantasize about it, or even act it out. All of that is sin. And when we give in to the thought over and over, we fall into a rut. It becomes second nature. And when a sin starts to become part of our nature, you are under the dominion of the passions. You are passive. You are a puppet. And the demons are pulling your strings. That is the old church father's view of how sin works. And that's what James says in James chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 in his own wording. But as we have seen, these six weeks, now seventh week, have made us very, very acutely aware of our failings, hasn't it? I am pretty certain that the week after I preached on apathy, I had an apathetic week. And the week after despondency, Brittany and I both looked at each other and said, we're feeling very despondent about things that were going on it's it and i it's not like a jinx right it's not like i'm preaching on this and now all of a sudden i've put this in in your life that's not how it works what happens is these things are always working on us but without terminology or the eyes to see you're letting it work on you but it's only when you resist you're aware and you start pushing against something do you realize the force of what's there Right When you ride in a car on the 10 freeway at you know, 80, 90, 70, people drive that fast on that, right? Um, you don't, you're not aware of how fast that is when you're in the car, but when you're outside the car, pulled over on the side, or heaven forbid, the object in which it hits, you know the force of that speed. And that's what's happening to us as we're aware of the passions, is you're now realizing the force of what you are pushing against. So do not fear, do not feel worse, do not say, ah, I'm making no progress, you are. In fact, it seems the closer we come to Christ, the more aware of our sins and the more readily we are to weep over them. That seems to be the path of Christianity. So I say all that to say, don't feel condemned, feel sick. The doctor doesn't look at you and say, not at least this doctor, not the great physician Christ. He looks at you and says, oh, I knew that from Genesis 3. I mean, I'm here to heal you, not to rub salt in your womb and make fun of you. All right. So the passion of self-esteem. What a word, self-esteem. Because we talk about having good self-esteem. That's a good thing. I need self-esteem. This is self-esteem that goes too far. And I was first introduced to this passion with the translation of the word self-esteem. Um, other translations translate the Greek word to vainglory. So that's a very old word. Um, either one works. It's the same idea. I like self-esteem because it gets very literal. It's I want esteem for myself. I want attention. I want admiration. I want to be noticed. I want to be thought well of. I want praise. I want glory. That, for me, self-esteem helps. If vainglory helps for you, great. Vainglory it is. Vainglory literally means empty opinion, empty reputation, or empty praise. So you're receiving empty applause, um, partly because you're not actually worthy. Well, we'll get into that. But yeah, that's, that's what vainglory actually means. It's empty opinion, praise, reputation. Um, okay. 
So because self-esteem wants to be noticed, this actually becomes particularly dangerous to the virtuous, meaning the Christian, partly. Uh, Those who are making advancements in their walk with Christ, who are beginning to look more like God, who are fleeing the sins, and who are putting on more of God's nature and character in their lives, they are most susceptible to self-esteem and vainglory. Because suddenly, you've probably experienced this before, you upped your prayer life, and you're feeling really good about yourself right now. And you just want other people to know. You just want to drop it in like, well, in my hour of devotion time. Why do we do that? We want to be acknowledged for our progress. We want someone to pat us on the back and say, boy, you're so amazing. We want to be like you. That's why we do that. So it's most dangerous to the virtuous, and unfortunately, Christians um, fall prey to this, but sometimes we're not even worthy of falling prey to it because we're not really that much better than a lot of people, but we act like we are, and we can often call it self-righteousness, where you're so smug about being better than everybody else. That's, that's when self-esteem looks really ugly. So Jesus cautioned us in Matthew 6, where he talks about the three main Uh, practices for growing in virtue. He talked about when you fast, when you pray, and when you give alms. He said, when you do any of these three, make sure you do not do them to be seen by men. Do them secretly. Because Jesus knew that self-esteem is always following our good deeds. John of Sinai put it like this to show you how hard it is to get rid of self-esteem. He said, The sun shines its rays on everyone, and vainglory shines on all undertakings. For example, I am vainglorious when I fast, and I am vainglorious again over my discretion when I ease the fast trying to remain unseen by people eating with me. When I am nicely dressed, I am conquered by vainglory. And when I put on ragged old clothing, I am again vainglorious. When I converse, I am conquered. And when I am quiet, again, I am conquered. No matter how I toss this prickly pear, at least one thorn stands upright. You can understand the problem. You talk about something, you show something, uh uh-oh, self-esteem, You try to ignore it, Uh uh-oh, I'm realizing how righteous I'm being by hiding it from everyone. I'm secretly being good. It just is hard to get away from. This is the problem with Uh, self-esteem. Self-esteem, so self-esteem is most dangerous to the virtuous, but self-esteem is also, here's how hard it is to get rid of. Self-esteem applauds itself in the absence of an audience. We can think that self-esteem is about what others see us doing and wanting to have their attention, but self-esteem, when there's no one to notice what you're doing, it just comes alongside and slithers up and says, you know you're so great. You know you're better than John Bueller. (laughs) This story is so memorable, I have to share it. John Cassian, you might remember, so St. Macarius discipled um, Evagrius, and Evagrius discipled John Cassian. John Cassian tells a story which is as humorous as it is tragic, and it's, uh, this is what he says, this is actual words. He says, this demon, self-esteem, vainglory, uh, even prompts us to imagine we are priests. 
Now, his context, he's writing to monks. So, you know, a priesthood is like a high thing for them. For you, it might be something else. It makes us imagine that we are priests. I remember a certain elder who went to visit a brother in his cell. And when he approached his door, he heard him speaking inside. And thinking that he was studying the scriptures, he stood outside listening, only to realize that self-esteem had driven the man out of his mind and that he was ordaining himself priest. The elder entered into the door, and then the brother, all embarrassed, asked, How long were you standing out there? And the elder replied with a smile, I arrived a moment ago, just as you were dismissing your congregation. (laughs) And John Cassian then comments on this, and he says, I have recalled this incident because I want to show to what depths the stupidity this demon can bring us. A self-delusion, and even in the absence of an audience, we can start thinking grander thoughts about ourselves than we really truly are. That's why it's dangerous to be alone too long. Self-esteem also hides an inner deadness. There's a deadness within us, and we don't want people to know it. So what we do is we project a different vision that people can applaud and stick their praise to, as if we can't feel alive without sticky notes of praise and we appreciate you and you're wonderful and that's how we feel alive there's a song by arcade fire who bless you by chance this is the second time arcade fire made it into this this sermon series so i don't know what's up with that but um they have a song called um uh flash bulb eyes and it's basically revisiting that ancient question you know how ancient tribes there's a superstition that if you took their picture you take their soul Um, they revisit that question and reconsider it in light of the way we use image in our culture and basically suggest, uh, yeah, the camera is actually taking our soul. So here's the lyrics to this song. It goes like this. What if the camera really do take your soul? Oh, no. Hit me with your flashbulb eyes. Hit me with your flashbulb eyes. You know I've got nothing to hide. You know I've got nothing to hide. No, I got nothing. And I love the genius of the turn of the song because on one hand, it starts singing about where we are. We want to be seen. We want people to notice what we're doing with our lives because we've got nothing to hide. Like, I've got a wonderful life. But then they, re- they re-sing that phrase, you got nothing to hide, except they take out the to hide part. They admit that. You know you've got nothing. No, you've got nothing. The reason we want people to notice us, in other words, is because we know we have nothing, so we project something that's false or something that people can actually look at and say, oh, you're actually a pretty cool person. And this camera society or being seen, being noticed, our culture of self-promotion, celebrity following, social media, this is what I'm up to, this use of camera and image is emptying our souls. In other words, um, our desire for attention is a facade. We think it's because we have nothing to hide, but it's because we actually have nothing at all inside. So it's a facade so that people don't understand who we really are in our deep poverty. Um, We don't crave notice because we are narcissistic. We actually crave notice because we fear scarcity. 
We fear that we are not good enough, smart enough, fast enough, that we don't have enough sleep, enough time, enough money, enough friends, enough skill. We're afraid of this scarcity, this lack, that we're not enough. So what we do is we look for attention and praise and notice so that people don't discover that we're not enough. Or put another way, we desire praise not because we are full of self, but we desire praise because we are empty of life. Self-esteem makes us vampires that are seeking a feeling of being alive, seeking the feeling that only God's eternal life can give us when it comes into us, and we're seeking it rather by attracting and sucking on the attention of others. That's how we feel alive. That's how we feel important. It makes us vampires. So if that's not enough problem of self-esteem, let's, let's talk about the problem of self-esteem. Um, that's what it looks like. But the problem with self-esteem is self-esteem is there's at least three problems I'll talk about. The third one is going to be the mega problem. You probably already know it's going. First problem, self-esteem is a snare. It traps you and it will not lead you to life. It cannot lead you to life. You already heard about the emptiness and that bringing attention and praise to yourself is not going to fill that. But here's how the Bible says it. Proverbs 29, verse 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. If I'm always worried about what you think about me and living my life and angling in such a way that I get your good opinion about me, I will be stuck. I'm forever stuck to the changing whims of people's opinions. It's not a good place to be. John 12, verse 41. Jesus, I'm sorry, John. John's narrating and he says, Many of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess their belief in Jesus. Why? So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That is a heavy assessment of what john saw going on so proverbs 19 verse 23 encourages this instead the fear of the lord or that's a concern for his opinion wanting esteem from the lord the fear of the lord leads to life and however and whoever has it rests satisfied self-esteem is a snare and cannot lead to life second self-esteem buries the true self. Self-esteem buries who God has made you to be. That's what I term the true self. I know it's psychological talk, but the true self is really the person God made you to be and to function on this earth as. But if you are driven by self-esteem, you're going to bury that person because we fear that no one wants that person. They want rather the person that you project the person that you think people want you to be. That's called a false self. It's not your true self. It's not your real self. You're, you're becoming what opinions tell you you should be. You're becoming whatever it takes to get notice and attention and admiration. And when we live like this, we forever bury the death of the person God is asking us to be. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says that God is trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we have all got ourselves up and are all strutting about like the little idiots we are. He said that. 
I wish I had got a bit further with humility myself, for if I had, I could possibly tell you more about the relief, the comfort of taking the fancy dress off, getting rid of the false self with all its look at me and aren't I a good boy and all its posing and posturing to get even near it even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. And Lewis is mourning. I wish I could actually be close to getting rid of this false, fancy dress self, because then I would know that refreshment, that life in God. Thomas Merton, I don't quote very often because I would not necessarily recommend you go read him on your own. It takes a little guidance. Um, but this quote is worth gold. Um, he says, All sin starts from the assumption that my false self, the self that exists only in my own egocentric desires, is the fundamental reality of life to which everything else in the universe is ordered. Did you catch that? This idea of who I think I should be becomes the center of my reality. You're now building your whole reality on an image of who you think you need to be and not who God tells you to be. That's the start of sin, he says. He continues, thus, I use up my life in the deep, I, I use up my life in the desire for pleasure and the thirst for experiences, for power, honor, knowledge, and love, so that I can clothe this false self and construct its nothingness into something objectively real. I reach for feelings and pleasure and experiences and titles and things people can notice to make my emptiness visible, is what he's saying. Then, and I wind experiences around myself and cover myself with pleasure and glory like bandages in order to make myself perceptible to myself and to the world as if I were an invisible body that could only become visible when something visible covered its surface. And he's right. We feel invisible, we feel insignificant, so we project things, we attach things to ourselves, we want people to think certain things about ourselves so that we like ourselves and so others like us. And all we are is we're invisible beings trying to wrap ourselves with these things so that we are suddenly visible. Why? Because we're going all about this wrong. We're being driven for a need to feel, feel the emptiness from people when rather we need it from God. So he finishes, Merton says, Therefore, there is only one problem on which all my existence, my peace, and my happiness depend, to discover myself in discovering God. If I find him, I will find myself, and if I find my true self, I will find him. He puts that a little bit too much emphasis on the you part, but I like nonetheless what he's saying, that when you find God... When God becomes your God and you bow down before him, you find who you are. He gives you your real self. He gives you legs to stand on. He gives you a purpose to exist. And he gives you the praise, the glory, and applause that you've been hungering for. And he says, like he said to Christ in the Jordan River, this is my beloved daughter, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Equally translatable to in whom I am proud. third problem with self-esteem is that it is, and this is the biggest problem, it is the final step before you drop off the ledge into pride. 
That is enough reason to flee from this like the devil himself. Here's how pride is described. I describe pride as the death of the soul. It's the death of the soul because it is the culmination of all the passions. Here's how others have described it. The Apostle James and Peter, two places in the New Testament, quoting from the Proverbs, say, God opposes the proud. Did you hear that? It's not just like God's like unhappy with your pride. It's like, oh, you should get rid of that probably. God works against. He is an enemy to the proud. And the Bible puts, doesn't, always want it, doesn't always put God as an enemy to many things. He's the one who came to die for sinners. But to the proud, you have made God an enemy. God opposes the proud. Evagrius the solitary said, Pride is the cause of the most damaging fall for the soul, for it considers the self as the source of all goodness and virtue. That's the death of the soul. C.S. Lewis said, Pride is the great sin. In mere Christianity, the chapter on pride is just called the great sin. He doesn't even call it pride. He needs a better word, the great sin. Uh, because he calls it the great sin, for it is the complete anti-God state of mind. So then here's a quote from Lewis in that chapter. He says, um, all the other vices, which we would say passions, all the other passions, vices, sins, come from the devil working on us through our animal nature. Right? Lust, animal nature, gluttony, animal nature. You go down the list, most of them are the animal nature. But pride does not come through our animal nature at all. It comes directly from hell. It is purely spiritual. Consequently, it is also far more subtle and deadly. John of Sinai, his great definitions, defines pride like this. Put on your seatbelts. Pride is apostasy, a creation of the devil, the disdain of others, the mother of condemning others. It's the child of praise, a mark of barrenness, a departure from divine aid, the forerunner of craziness, the messenger of missteps, a foothold for being possessed by Satan, a wellspring of anger, a gateway to hypocrisy, the foundation of demons, the assistant of vice. It is a denial of mercy, an angry interrogator, a ruthless judge, an adversary of God, and a root of blasphemy. He could have stopped at any one of those. <laughs> now it sounds really bad. So John of Sinai then also later recognizes there are three steps into pride. The first, well, let me quote him and then I'll summarize it for you. He says, the beginning of pride is the maturation of vainglory or self-esteem. The middle involves humiliating our neighbor, the shameless exhibition of our toils, self-satisfaction of the heart, and disdain of being exposed. Or in other words, disdain of ever being told you're wrong or someone exposing that you've messed up something. Disdain of being exposed. Then, third, the end is the refusal of help from God. You know you're at pride when you've refused help from God. And then it's also the praising of one's labors, a diabolic nature. Diabolic makes you think of demons. Diabolic literally means to separate. Because this is what darkness and the devil is up to. 
He does not put things together. That's what God does. That's called reconciliation. It's called creation. It's called resurrection. The demons and the devil are about diabolical acts, separating, severing, fracturing, dismantling, dissolving. And that's the soul and pride. What's it like the little seltzer you put? Alka-Seltzer pill? Remember those things that fizz in water and they disappear? Airborne, that's the last one I remember using. That's what it is. The soul in pride just dissolves and is gone. So his three steps. The beginning of pride is the maturation of self-esteem. When, when self-esteem begins growing stronger in us, you have reached one step into pride. You've begun the journey. The middle stage is when you are now competing with others. Because pride is essentially competitive. Self-esteem wants to be admired. But pride wants to be more admired than anybody else. And as long as someone else has more admiration than me, I will not rest till I beat them in admiration. That's the difference between self-esteem and pride. Um, You're going to start putting other people down. You're going to start exalting yourself. You may not even want something, but because somebody else wants it, it's going to make them look good. You're going to go after it. And then the end, refusal of God. Self-esteem, on one hand, needs admiration. But pride, on the other hand, has moved beyond needing anything. It doesn't even want your admiration. You're not worthy of my admiration. I don't need your opinion. Now, on one hand, there's liberation, saying I don't care what people think about me. But as C.S. Lewis points out, he says, more often than not, our attitude is like that because we deem those people as undeserving of having an opinion about us. That's pride. So pride becomes self-sufficiency. It's, in other words, the rejection of relationship. You don't need relationship with other people, and you don't need relationship with God. Pride says, I am everything I need to be on my own without all you losers. That's why it's the death of the soul. You're dead. You're gone. You're gone when pride has overtaken you. Now, does that mean you feel pride sometimes? Yes, we, we suffer in it. But when you allow pride to take you as a passion to own you, your soul is in danger and you need massive emergency help from God. You need to start with a neighbor because that's the first step to humility is tell someone you've messed up and then we can get to God. So the power over self-esteem. See how important it is? We're not even going to talk about the power over pride. We're going to talk about the power over self-esteem. Because if you don't get let self-esteem on you, you're good on the pride aspect. Because actually some writers have said that there is no opposite virtue to pride. Only God is the opposer of pride. The opposite of self-esteem is humility. But of pride, the only opposite is God is your adversary. So we need to work on our self-esteem. And self-esteem, as I just said, it's cured by humility. Self-esteem is cured by humility. That's, that's, it is the chief Christian virtue. Jesus, in the beginning of the Beatitudes, said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the path of following Christ. It starts with humility. And we now, you're in Philippians 2. We've been reciting this every week through Lent. Because it is such an important passage. In fact, many people believe that when Paul writes this in Philippians 2, verse 5, he's not writing this, he is reciting it. 
that this was either a creed or a hymn or a song that the early church knew and that Paul is simply citing it. Philippians 2 verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There's a mind to have that you're not going to have on your own, but you have it in Christ because Christ embodied what this mind looks like. Now, before this, Paul was talking about divisions and being unified. The mind he wants us to have is one that gets along and works together. But now, how do we get that? Well, there's a mindset, and that mindset comes from Christ. And here's what it looks like. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clutched at or held. He didn't come to earth saying, Oh, I'm so, I need a lot of esteem, people. I need to tell you about my dad and all the secrets I know and all the questions you have about existence of everything. I am going to, he didn't go around boasting about his godness. In fact, he often told people he healed to keep it quiet. You'll notice that the resurrection did not occur with a host of angels blasting trumpets to the Caesar of the world and all the other Roman minions and say, guess what? Your kingdom's dead because God is raised from the dead. Come everyone right now and see the living being himself in the flesh. Like there was none of that. The resurrection, I believe it's Frederick Buechner who said, or Buechner who said that the resurrection was a whisper. Christ comes out. He appears to a handful, ultimately 500 by the time he's ascended. That's it. And it's up to them to tell the story, the most ridiculous story that most people aren't going to buy, that the king of the universe came to be a servant. He came to die. What is this? No king shows humility. In fact, in the ancient times, like Rome and Greece, humility was considered a weakness. And kings were not expected to be humble. They were expected to be proud. It was to show your ability to lead. This was unheard of. He did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped, nor did he say, as they're crucifying him, you know what I could do right now? I'm just saying, I'm not going to, but I could. I could turn your head into a worm, and so forth. And we, we know that he did not use divine aid and assistance to deliver him from the cross. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what are we grasping at all the time? It's feeble attempts at equality with God. We're feebly trying to make people think better of us. And we're grasping at this reputation or this deed or make sure people think this well of me or this. That's what we do. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather made himself nothing. Now he defines nothing as taking the form of a servant. That's the lowest rung of the world at that time, a servant. A master could crucify his servant, his slave, without a trial. I just want you dead because you burnt my stake. Didn't happen often because you don't want to kill your slaves if you want slaves, right? But, but it could happen, and it did happen. He took the form of a servant Also, being nothing means being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he went even lower. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So, right, like God could have become a man and said, all right, it's my time to go because I'm about to die, so bye. Instead, he submitted to all things that humans go through, like death. That's humility. He submitted to this. But not just death itself, but the worst form of death possible. Not only physically worse, but humiliatingly the worst form of death. It says, he found human form, he humbled himself, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Crucifixion was so horrendous that the Romans, often we think of the Romans as just crucifying everybody, but they refused to crucify Roman citizens. Only non-Roman citizens, the outsiders, were reserved for crucifixion. It was meant to humiliate. We often talk about the way we want to go, and being a martyr for Christ is perhaps the most glorious way to go, but then we have our, you know, more secular glorious ways, like dying in bed or, you know, in your sleep, I mean. And just, you know, sort of like glorious ways. You definitely don't want to drive or die because you were texting while you're driving. And that's an inglorious way, right? There's glorious ways to die and there's inglorious ways. The cross was the most inglorious way in the Roman Empire. It probably got worse, though, by the time they did um, um, gladiator fights and things like that. That would have been really considered really humiliating. But at the time, crucifixion was, was being used So what we see here is in Christ, we see the mind of Christ is downward mobility. Did you notice how the text just kept going down the rungs of a ladder? He made himself nothing by becoming a man, by becoming the form of a servant, by submitting to death, by submitting to the type of death, which was the worst. It just kept going down humility. This is like water. I didn't take the time to find the quote, but you you who've read Hind's Feet and Hind's Places... You might remember that there's a, there's a quote in there about water, how water always seeks the lowest place, and so does humility. Water doesn't rest until it's at the bottom of something. And that's what a humble spirit does. John of Sinai said that humility was a depth into which we dive and drown every wicked spirit. Demons, the devil cannot touch humility. That is like Monsters, Inc., when a kid's sock is on... Never mind. If you've seen it, you know what I mean. Um, I realize this as I start. I'm like, wrong crowd, so we'll keep moving. Uh, uh, the story... Um, you guys will remember this, maybe. Uh, there was a story of Macarius the Great, and he was visited by a young man who wanted spiritual wisdom. So Macarius sent him to the cemetery to go insult the tombstones. And then he sent him back to go praise the tombstones. And Marcarius asked him, so what did they say? The tombstones, what did they say? And the young man said, well, I insulted them. They said nothing. And I praised them and they said nothing. And Marcarius said, that is what you should be like. Become dead like them and learn to be moved neither by insults nor by flattery. Humility is not offended when it's wronged. Humility is not lifted up when it's praised. Humility lives like the dead. Although it's full of life, that's the ironic thing. How do we grow in humility? I have four quick uh, ways that we can do this. 
Uh, one, tell everyone you're humble. Just kidding. Um, no, that's not going to work. Um, first, tears. Tears, first step to humility. It's mourning our sin. And this is really what Lent is about and remembering, uh, getting ourselves toward Easter. It's not just, yeah, Easter, and we celebrate. It's about a journey of recognizing what Easter means. And it's developing sorrow for our sins in, in tears, actual tears, if God gives them to you. This is not to get all super sappy and emotional, but tears are a gift. If you can weep over your sins and yourself, that's a gift from God. And um, I don't remember who, but I read it in several places uh, from different old people that tears are cleansing agents of the soul. If you have it, weep. Ask God, or just at least mourn in the heart for your sin. John of Sinai said that when our flatterers or our tempters bring glory upon us, let us quickly bring to mind our many sins, and we will discover ourselves not worthy of such praise, either in word or deed. Um, this is, I just recalled the story. There was a story of Macarius, since we just mentioned him. You might remember this other one as well. That anytime someone came and started doting on him and like goggling, like, I'm in the midst of the great Macarius, he would just start talking about all his flaws as a youth. And then he would start talking about the one time he stole a date as a kid and he would weep over it. He wept over stealing a date when he was just a child. That's tears and that's humility keeping our sins forward, not so that we're miserable, not so that we have bad self-esteem, like a low self-esteem. It's not about beating ourselves up, but it's just about being real about who we are. Like, I'm saved by Christ through grace, and I don't need your praise. I know who I am in him, and I know what I've done, and that's enough. That's enough. Second, laughter. So there's tears, but there's laughter. Laughter, I mean, not just sit down and watch a comedy, which is usually crass in our culture, um, and laugh. Ha ha. Like, that's not necessarily humility. Humility is being able to laugh at yourself. And to be able to laugh at yourself means you're not taking yourself too seriously. And to not take yourself too seriously means you don't see yourself as too important. Man, you can get stressed and you can get uptight. And when you consider what you do and who you are is way too important to fail, way too important not to do this or that. And, and then you get in this mode of being and, and you can start to think really important thoughts about yourself. Who's putting the most often we put this pressure on ourselves because we think we're great. We think we're something. We think people need us and count on us. Yeah, be faithful to what you say you will do, but don't put undue importance on yourself. Learn to laugh at your mistakes. Learn to joke. Learn to say, I know I mess up all the time, and it's really funny. My wife's good at doing that, so you can be like her. Um, C.S. Lewis has this memorable line from one of the characters in The Great Divorce. They get up there, and one guy's all crabby about being theologically right or whatever, and then one character says to him, but that's the great joke. When you get here, you realize that we've all been wrong. And that, I'm so looking forward to that, like getting up to heaven, being like, um, wow, I was wrong about everything, and I thought Calvary had it right. Oh, well, that's gonna, isn't that going to be liberating, though? Don't you want to be around people who recognize their wrongs and laugh together at them rather than people who get together and say, uh, you let the Episcopalians in here? What in the world? That's not, I have nothing against Never mind. Just stay out of that. Um, Third, so there's tears, there's laughter. Third, fellowship. Relationships humble us, which is why we don't like them, which is also why pride says I don't need relationships. But relationships keep us humble. So this is why church as actual physical flesh and blood being a body of Christ together and gathering together, not just on Sundays especially, but also throughout the week, this keeps us humble. 
And it, I don't mean, you know, you, you, you walk into the back. No, nothing about you back rowers. I know all of you. But um, you just walk in the back so you can get out quick. Or you can, like, make sure no one has to talk to me. You don't want to get stuck. Like, uh, I know. I know the feeling. I am tra- I'm the most trapped. You guys won't let me go. I mean, I got to sneak out the back. Actually, I, I did that one week. We were driving. Do you remember this? We had to go out to Arizona right after the service. I told Pastor Mike, this was back when he was a pastor, I was like, we're just going to sneak out the back here and go out so that we don't <laughs> lose any time. But some of us, tre- some of us come to church like that. Every- Not none of you. A lot of people come to church like that every week. And it's just about get in and get out. Because we don't like the people, because the people remind us that we are just like them. We're inferior and we're messed up. And we are, as Paul said, we are the, what do you say in 1 Corinthians 1? He said that God called the, um, the, uh, the lowly, the weak, and the foolish to confound the wise, the strong, and the high and mighty. We need each other. These relationships keep us humble. Marriage, right, married people? If your marriage is working, it means it's keeping you humble. If it's on the rocks, you're not embracing relationship. And fourth. (laughs) I heard someone said that's good. (laughs) I was like, start thinking about their marriage. (laughs) Um, Fourth, God esteem. God esteem. We need God esteem. Not self-esteem. We need God esteem. The problem with self-esteem is that our culture is taking it so far as where you get to determine how cool and good you are. That's not where Christians go. God is our esteem. God is our praise. God is our glory. But as Lewis Lewis wonderfully points out, that doesn't just mean we give him praise and we give him glory. We do that. But as we do, God doesn't just take. He's a mirror for us. He gives glory and praise back to his people. That's why worship changes us. We receive God esteem. Psychology actually suggests that a lack of praise from your parents when you're developing makes you eager and hungry for praise when you're an adult. And that sometimes that's the source of why people are the way they are. Um, okay, yes, and that there's possibly some legitimacy to that. But here's what we have from a Christian perspective is that regardless of what your parents did, you have a heavenly father who is pouring esteem upon you. We must receive it. Here's how the Bible says it, Matthew 3, 17. Well, I already said this. When Jesus was baptized, the Father says, this is my son, I'm pleased in him. But then John 5, verse 44. John 5, 44, Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe if you're not willing to receive glory that comes from God? Gospel's breathtaking. We're not just saved, but God actually wants to exalt us. Uncomfortable to talk about because it almost feels like heresy, doesn't it? We feel like we should remain so low, but God wants to exalt us. So here's our conclusion. We crave praise from others because we do not receive praise from God. Prayer teaches us how much he loves us. We get to sit before the praise and gaze of God as we return our praise and gaze to him. Worship does the same. Reading the scriptures does the same. Fellowship can do the same. 
But when we refuse these, we don't have place to receive God's praise for us. And so we look to others for it. And then we are in the vein of self-esteem and are on the cusp of losing ourselves to pride. Here's what we need to know, brothers and sisters. God loves us. He is for us. He is not against us. Psalm 84, 11, when people ask my life verse, I kind of lost one because I love so much a scripture now. But um, I often say Psalm 84, 11 because there it says, "The, the Lord God is the sun and shield. The Lord bestows glory and grace. He gives us glory and grace. He's not for us. He's not against us. He's not mad at us. He's not disappointed in us. And he's not upset with us. Our default position is that he is, which is why I have to say it, even if you already know it. He is not mad. He's not angry. In fact, humanity, for all of our fallen history, have so assumed that God is mad and has turned his back on us that he came as a man to say, hello, no, that's not the case. I'm willing to become like you. And then when humanity still rejected him and received the glory from one another instead and spat on him and whipped him, he was humbled on a tree to be exalted and shown i do love you and i'm not the monster you're the monster who's crucifying me i didn't come hurting anyone casting anyone to hell but you came and sentenced me to death the cross exposes that we are wrong and god has always been there waiting for us with open arms Adam and Eve were the first to run from God when they sinned, and we've been doing so since. They hid in the trees. God comes to us on a tree to find us in the trees. They cover themselves with fig leaves. Christ was hung naked. He hung on the cross to prove that we are loved by God. He hung on the cross to expose not God's anger for us, but our anger with God. He hung on the cross not to change God's mind about us, but to change our minds about God. Humility begins with receiving Christ as he's promised himself to us. Nothing less. He says, I love you that much, and it's okay to accept it because this is the esteem you've hungered for since you ran away from me. Lord, we ask that you keep us back from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over us. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.